Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. In colonial America, merchants were accustomed to trading goods in return for any number of things. English or foreign coins, wampum, commodities such as pork or grain, But the introduction of paper currency in the early 1700s changed more than merely the basis of exchange between merchants and customers. It represented a change in the ways that people thought about wealth, power, and social standing. Our guest today is Simon Middleton, Associate Professor of History at the College of William and Mary. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Simon has been working on a new book, which, among other things, looks at the introduction of paper money to the middle colonies, particularly New York and Pennsylvania in the 18th century. So welcome, Simon. Um, How do you do, Robert? Nice to meet you. So your book is examining the changing character of colonial American money and its relationship to social power from the early English settlements to the end of the Seven Years' War. So can you tell our audience how did money particularly before the introduction of paper currency, actually function? Uh, Was it a more abstract measure of accounting? And if so, how? I think we've got to start not in history and in context, but in theory and in notions of what money is, I think, to clarify. Because my experience about talking about this topic is if we just launch off talking about money everyone's got a notion in their mind of what money is but it's often underthought really and not precise enough so i think we have to think of money as not a thing um so not as a note or a coin or wampum or or a, or a wheat or some kind of commodity product but as a function and as you said what what was the function of money in early america well the function across money in all of the different contexts is where i would start people point to you know four main functions as a medium of exchange with which we're most familiar as a means of settlement and a store of value. But I always think of the primary function of money is as a measure of account. So as a way of reckoning values, which provides for the other three functions. You know, if you can't reckon in something, you can't store the value, you can't make a settlement and you can't use it as a medium of exchange. And if you start with that function of money as a a measure of value, a measure of account, that was how it was functioning um, across time and space and in and in early America. You would have a, uh, a notion of the pound, sterling, and pennies and so forth, and people would trade different commodities and credit according to that measure of value. So what happens is the paper money is a change in the form rather than the function of money. And it's the form change and the way it's introduced and then administered and experienced with which I'm most interested in the book. So what happens in the 18th century to encourage uh, more public consumption and and the shift uh, in the practice and appearance of currency and currency exchange? Uh, And what does it say about the changing social structures? Well, I, I think the really interesting connection is the connection between the marketplace and commerce and public finance. Money is a thing that's a legal and constitutional artifact. You can't have money unless you have this system of calculation which everybody adheres to through courts and through practices in markets and so forth. So money is always and already intimately related to government and politics. And very often major changes in money, for example, the creation of the Bank of England in 1694, come out of crises in public finance 
chance. So what you see is in the, in the early period, colonies are established in places like Virginia and New England and so forth, and they have a system of credit, some coins, some paper, but it's mostly adapted and it mostly resembles the kind of monetary landscape that you would have seen in medieval England, and that's in the early 17th century. By the end of the 17th century, that's radically changed and you have the monetary landscape that we have pretty much today. You've got the beginnings of a central banking system, you've got the relationship between private finance and sovereign authority, and you've got paper currencies that are produced and backed by legislatures and tax revenues and land values. So it's about what happens in that 17th century moment and it's no surprise that it's all connected to the upheavals of the 17th century, the dynastic struggles, particularly around the English Civil War, the English crowns need to raise revenues. And then the great switch, the end of the Stuarts at the end of the 1690s and, the, and the, the establishment of a new dynasty under William and Mary and the financial problems associated with that, which ramify out into the imperial context um, and in, in a very local way in Massachusetts in New England, having to go to war against the French in Canada, they need to pay for that somehow. And, and, and that's how these currencies are first kind of invented at the turn of this 17th and 18th century. Very often in two ways, really, in response to a public finance crisis to do with preparing for the military and defending the colony. And then in Pennsylvania in the 1720s in response to a commercial recession that follows on or ramifies out from the South Sea bubble collapse in the 1720s. We're seeing money associated with changing social structures as well and, and money acquiring value that's external to trade. So can you talk a little bit more about that and about the symbolic meanings of money? The way I've conceived it or thought about it is in the anal tradition, money is ultimately about individuals' relationship with value and time, right? What money does is allows individuals to transfer value across time and space and to do so in a way that is assured and trusted. So you think about Bitcoin now, right? That's just that's a new way of transferring value between individuals. And it's taken off because the blockchain allows us to be able to guarantee that transaction. Well, if you think about an economy that doesn't have paper money and rests, as the colonial economy does, mostly on book credit, and exchanges between each people who are written down in accounts and then regularly brought to an addition through different periods in the year. And suddenly you've got a paper note, right? Well, that changes the relationship between the individuals and their relationship between how they pass value between each other and assure it over time. Because once you're able to pay somebody with a paper note, it's a bit like paying them with a coin in as much as you're you're not as invested in what their background is and what their family is and who their social connections are if you can get a payment from them, which is almost terminal and guaranteed, right? The problem with gold and silver, of course, is that it's a scarce commodity and that's you know, results in a dearth of coin in the colonial economy. So introducing, as the colonies do between 1690 and 1730, tens of thousands of notes in hundreds of thousands of value, you can see that really provides a heck of a stimulus to the economy. So it's no surprise that after these public finance paper currencies are instituted and bedded down, that you begin to see consumption taking off in the 1720s and the 1730s as people have uh, money in their pockets. And, and in the book, I look at the rise of shopkeeping, for example, in Philadelphia, which is a pretty uncertain and difficult trade through the 17-teens and 1720s, and then is established through the 1730s and the 1740s. A funny little thing that I found as I was doing the research was if you go and look up store in the OED, 
it'll tell you that it's an American for shop. I'm an Englishman, so store, we, don't, we, don't, we wouldn't say store in England, and we think of a store as an Americanism. And the first usage that the OED puts for that is in Philadelphia in the 1740s. That's where the idea of American stores come from. Part of what you argue is that this changing conception of control and management, particularly provincial money, spurs the American Revolution. I wonder if you could talk more about that, how, how the various legal assumptions about debt litigation both created and enforced inequalities that begin to foster resentment about empire and that would contribute to the causes of the American Revolution. The proviso is that as an early Americanist, we've got to be always in danger. Everybody's book is always about the coming of the American Revolution. And, and, and so I, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit averse to that. That's why I finished at the French and Indian War, where nobody knew there was going to be an American Revolution and they weren't getting ready for it. Do you know what I mean? I, and I am aware that on this conversation, I'm starting out with a thought and then I'm finishing up at somewhere else. And I started out by telling you about the sense of time a, a minute ago. The introduction of paper money is in the political time of now, what Danal would identify as the most recent, you know, um, short time in terms of policy and political arguments and falling out between imperial officials and governors. And then there's a much more long durée effect of money as it changes credit practices. And that takes place over a generation or more. And what we see in regards to how that changes the relationship between colonies and empire leading to something like a situation that will lead to the American Revolution, is that imagine the difference of a colony, and this is what I'm writing about right now, actually, in Pennsylvania, that can create and manage its own value through its own assembly by producing paper. And Benjamin Franklin in 1729 writes a very important, 23-year-old guy writes this amazing pamphlet, um, A Modest Inquiry into the Need for Paper Money, making this argument that actually we haven't got gold, we haven't got silver, we haven't got Venetian banks, but what we do have is land and workers and laborers who are ready to put their shoulders into it and work. And that's our value. And I think this is a really important foundation for a, a sense of colonial political and economic autonomy is that they can create their own value because it's that value that they will then see as a contribution to the imperial kind of commercial empire. And it's also that sense of the value that they're bringing to the British empire that underpins their arguments for political freedoms and political rights. That and the constitutional tradition, we freeborn Englishmen. The freeborn Englishman ancient constitution to political tradition is one argument in justification of colonial rights. But I think the here and now we are creating value, commerce, profit, prosperity today is a more powerful argument, actually, and one that will ultimately combine the economic and the political together in a very powerful and, and radical argument. So what is the difference of your project from previous economic histories? Well, there's been loads of great work, and particularly around the times of financial crises. So we're not surprised that, you know, John Maynard Keynes gets interested in the 20s and, and ends up producing the general theory. And there's lots of great work in the 20s and the 30s by historians. But there's been a kind of division of labor over money. And it goes all the way back to the 1890s and, and the division between sociology and economics. And economics, which was developing as, a, as its discipline in its own right in the, late, in the early 20th century, got money away from sociology. So people like Georg Zimmel and Max Weber, who had written on money, were kind of great theorists. And actually, historians kind of fall in between those two stools have generally approached money as the economic 
um, theorists have persuaded us to approach it. And that is with the mindset of a classical or neoclassical economic theory of money as something which is not necessarily determining of trade, but really just a medium of exchange that facilitates trade. So people write about household budgets, they write about wages, they write about merchant profits, but the fact of money is not a part of the story. The story is, is how big is the household budget, how exploitative is the wage, how much is the profit, but actually using the, the form of money that's used is not what people are thinking about. Much more of that kind of thinking has gone on in literary theory, especially in studies of the 18th century novel, and also in anthropology, going back to Marcel Mauss, the gift in, in, in the 20s and stuff, and in sociology. And I think what's happened and, what, and where my book is now kind of surfing the same wave to the beach is we've had in the last 10 or 15 years some really great work by people like Christine de San and Deborah Valanz and going further back um, into sociology, people like Veronica um, Zelazar, about money's history as a cultural and legal and social artifact rather than just as a value neutral medium of exchange that enables trade to happen that would have happened anyway but it's made more convenient by the use of money so we're historicizing money there's another great book by a woman called Rebecca Spang on money in the French Revolution that's also doing this kind of work and so that that's where I would put the book that I'm, I'm writing right now so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to extrapolate into contemporary times a bit in terms of your project and how can your study inform us, tell us more about the rightward drift of contemporary mainstream politics and, and particularly the emergence of uh, the neoliberal political economy? I mean, this is when it's just such an exciting project. And, it, and, it, and even before the end of civilization and COVID-19, and even before the great collapse of 2008, money was an important and significant project. But in this time now, it is phenomenally important and so great to teach, actually. Students, just you can see their eyes widen when they, you actually work out what money is. And actually, and you can say to them, if somebody tells you that there isn't enough money for a project, building a hospital or whatever, you can say to them, well, if money is a measure of account, you can no more run out of money than you can run out of pounds and ounces or kilograms or meters or miles. It's a resource. The way I think about it and the way that I explain it to students is if you think about money as a social technology for the distribution of value, which only works because we all subscribe to it as a tool. We all trust it. We pay somebody with a $20 bill. They accept it because they know that's good. And behind that bill stands the government and all of us, right? So what we've done is we've seen a neoliberal economy, which has basically accumulated and offshored a load of value, aggrandizing in individual and corporate interests, a tool which should be available for us all to use. And one of the things that's so important about COVID is that it is such a massive interruption into the ordinary flow of political economy. I don't think they're going to be able to fix it as straightforwardly as they did after 2008, because this is an ongoing and massive intervention in the global economy. It's not just Western Europe and China will bail us out with their consumption and so forth. So I think that the way the project speaks to now is we're going to have to have a really fundamental conversation about what is value and how do we use it.
because money is all, all it is is a social technology for the representation and transfer of value across time and space. That's the core definition, the takeaway, if you like, from this session. And if it is a social technology for the assurance and transfer of value across time and space, then if there's a load of value in the Cayman Islands not doing anything, you know, maybe we should be bringing that back into social use. It doesn't make sense for the world to be impoverished because we haven't got the value we need to circulate when there is value aplenty somewhere else. And that was precisely Franklin's argument in 1729. In conclusion, talk to us a little bit about uh, personally, what brought you to this study? What inflamed your passions in terms of doing this particular historical moment and this particular subject? My work has always been about labor, political economy, debt, law, class, you know, because it's about the connection between scholarship and activism, or at least thinking in terms of relationships to current politics, because I find that's the way students get the buzz the greatest. If they can see it's not just about learning dates and facts and history, it's about how history informs and helps us to make sense of politics in the here and now. So after working on things like labor history and class and political economy and debt and credit and so forth, it was actually after the great collapse in 2008-9, when you read this stuff for fun, like I do, nerdy, you could see the numbers that were being talked about. And I remember talking to friends back in 2008-9 saying, you guys, you've got no idea how massive the growth of wealth was on the back of that consumer boom from the middle of the 90s through to 2007, and how far we've got to fall as a consequence of that speculation by casino banks, as Keynes would call them, right? And the numbers were so massive that I just got in. When the, you know, when the government stands up and says we've never had any money for the hospitals or the schools or, you know, for the old people's homes, and then suddenly they're finding hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out banking institutions because they're too big to fail. I was fascinated by that question. And I just I started reading about money in anthropology and literary theory, in sociology. And then I saw what historians were doing with money. And I thought, God, it's, we're making such a bad job of that. You know, there's a much more interesting story about money and the history of money and then inspired by people like Deborah Valenz and Christine Dessan and people like that who were doing great work which has subsequently appeared while I've been toiling away on this book. So thank you Simon Middleton and thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman. Thank you. <laughs>